Hello there, I'm Andy Lemasugu and welcome to the second installment of African Tech Roundup's seven-part mini-series highlighting the progress that's being made in creating jobs and backing entrepreneurship in vulnerable regions of Africa and the Middle East. In this conversation, I chat with a seasoned Middle Eastern economics researcher who specializes in Arab economies, Arab trade policies, and the political economy of Syria. Listen in as I tap her extensive professional and lived experience as I try to wrap my mind around some of the ways Arab identity and political dynamics, past and present, inform the economic regimes of nations that tend to dominate the global news cycle for all kinds of complex reasons. No doubt, there's lots to learn. Many thanks to Spark for being the presenting partner of this series. Spark is a Dutch NGO that's creating jobs for young people in fragile regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East by boosting entrepreneurship, employability, and higher education. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit spark.ngo. That's spark.ngo. This podcast series, which was taped at the fringes of Spark's 7th annual Ignite Conference in Amsterdam, is an independent African Tech Rounder production. And the opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting sponsor, Spark. So let's get straight into it. Uh, my name is Salam Said. I am a researcher uh, in, economic, uh, in economics uh, with a focus on the Arab countries uh, and the political economy of the Middle East in general with a focus also again uh, on Syria. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Salam. Thank you. I'm excited because this is the first time we've had an academic with the specialty on the program and one from the region, so not one with a lens looking from the outside in or with an assumed expertise. There's a, a certain lived expertise here as well. Given your exposure to uh, academics around the world who are interested in this in, in your area, what are some of the most common misconceptions they make about Arab economies? What constitutes them? What drives them? What incentivizes their growth? Thinking or like a view about these areas is very much, um, very much connected to the Occident orientalistic uh, discourse and uh, also with the colonial uh, history. This is on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, in terms of economy, uh, usually everyone talking about the Arab countries or Arab region as a one region and one get the impression, okay, it is a homogeneous uh, uh, area, but it is not. They are very different countries, have different political and economic systems. They follow different uh, economic policies. Not all these countries have oil and they are rich uh, of resources so uh, this is another thing what um, might be mistake let's say uh, but of course I'm talking about in general uh, knowledge but the economists they know about the region very well. So we share this problem because uh, to many people Africa is a country and uh, it sounds like to a lot of people the Arab region is one big place. Mm. That's true. They, they, they share a lot of uh, common things like uh, the language, uh, the history somehow. Some countries, they have similar uh, economic structure and so on, but they are really very different. You, you have a very rich countries like Qatar and very poor countries like Yemen or Somalia. Um, you have uh, countries dependent on agriculture like uh, Morocco and uh, Egypt and so on. And you have countries dependent on oil uh, industry and so on. So it is very varied, the region. 
So you used a very fancy word that I haven't quite heard before, or a term. Uh, what was that terminology, the first thing you mentioned, and what does it mean? Yes, uh, Orientalism, actually, it's a term which uh, has been used um, from different uh, intellectuals or like uh, Orientalists in Europe. And Edward Said has criticized this kind of uh, looking at the Orient from the Occident point of view. He criticized this kind of... Um, Istishraq, as it's in Arabic, which is like Orientalist trying to analyze this region and to study this region from from the European point of view and not from uh, the point of view of the of the the region itself. It's a form of othering, I think. So yeah, somehow like this. Yeah. So this is true for a lot of people that when they think of Arab economies, they Im- immediately think of the Middle East. You named a number of African countries like Somalia, Morocco, um, I suppose Egypt and Algeria and others come to mind as part of the, the broader Arab economy. And I wonder what framework you use for making sense of the space from an economic standpoint, perhaps um, to a lesser degree, perhaps in a social science standpoint, how do you compartmentalize or create files for everything? Before I talk about the economic point of view, I want just to mention that Arabic as an identity for these countries is like a political concept, which appears after independent or from the European colony. That it was like pan-Arab uh, Arab ideology or pan-Arabism, and they try to find like regional nationality for all these countries, and that was the Arab as a word. But um, from economic point of view, you have in this like this term or this region, which is Arabic region, you have very small countries like Yemen, and you have a big countries like Algeria from the from the space for the area. So, so geographic from a geographic point of view. Exactly. the The second thing is you have uh, countries which. Uh, follow um, uh, socialist policies like in Syria, Algeria, Tunisia. Uh, and there is another one uh, who uh, follow like the, the nationalist, uh, later uh, conservative liberal policies. And this is, for example, the Gulf states, uh, Jordan to uh, somehow, and I'm talking now about the period of time directly after the independent. But in the 90s, all these countries, even the socialist countries, started to open up the economy due to different factors. And all of them, they went to a direction, not only liberalism, but a new liberalism. And uh, from that point, the effects of, of these policies became very similar everywhere. And this is what prepared for the Arab Spring. Because if you uh, notice the, the reasons for the Arab Spring, Everywhere, like in Egypt and in Tunisia and so on, everyone like calls for social justice. Everyone calls for job and not every job, but decent jobs for more security, social security, uh, more rights, more more like equality in life. It just occurred to me that Arabness might be in this context far more important than, say, Middle Easternness and Africanness, whatever that means. Right, so I wonder how that factors into into this into the conversation. 
this Arab identity, which like appears in the in the 50s, uh, which is uh, also a kind of ideology, which is sometimes uh, combined with uh, with uh, uh, socialism, but in some countries with nationalism, it leads to create different regional economic projects. Like in the 50s, for example, the uh, the Arab League uh, cre- has been created, and they had like a, a concept of uh, regional economic integration, like the EU, to just to build as a first step like free trade zone and for future steps it should be like a, a union economic union and so on and this serves this kind of ideology which is like Arab unity we have to to stick together we have to fight together we have to cooperate together just to to uh, confront or to just to, f- to protect ourselves uh, against the old colonial powers, but also uh, against the all challenges. Unfortunately, it doesn't work very well for different reasons. We can talk about the reasons. Uh, wh- Please do. Like, yeah. Why doesn't this work so well? What seems obvious to me is the tension that's created when certain states, I don't know, strike oil <laughs> and others don't. Uh, and so I, I, I suppose, you know, the pragmatic realities of capitalism start to maybe drive a wedge in this uh, imagined unity around Arab identity. The first attempt to have a like European economic integration also appeared in the 50s and now they have a like European Union and uh, the Arab countries uh, didn't uh, manage to do this. Uh, there is a different uh, reasons. One of them, you know, uh, they have a potential to do it perfectly actually because of this reason what you talk about, like some countries have resources and others have human resources, uh, the others uh, like have uh, agricultural resources and so on. They Access to ports and so on. Yeah, this also this is a very important um, point, transportation or that's just access to European markets. But the problem is that uh, in the time while this uh, identity appears, some of the countries, and especially the oil countries, the Gulf states, they get a little bit scared of sharing their oil according to this identity. Because uh, at that time, uh, a slogan has appeared, which is the Arab oil for all Arabs, which means that this, this oil is not only the right of these sheikhs who are in the Gulf states, but all for everyone. And I think this is one reason why they, they hesitate to, to cooperate more or to deepen the cooperation between them. This one thing. The second thing is, at that time, they developed uh, differently. For example, the development strategies of the socialist-oriented like countries like Syria, it is completely different from countries like Jordan. Um, they want to have self-sufficient, for example. They are very skeptical uh, towards uh, international corporates, Americans, for example, and so on, while the Gulf states like open their market, open their economy for invest- investors like um, the U.S. and so on. So it was like political disparity, let's say, in the opinion. And maybe this what makes this cooperation impossible. I, I did my pitch, by the way, on the trade relation between, among the Arab countries. And I, I tried just to understand why the uh, free trade area doesn't work in these Arab countries. And I figured out that 
if you open the market, you will give more freedom for the market, somehow at the cost of the government who is controlling all these things. There might be an erosion of sovereign political power as things currently stand, should things should a free trade area exist? It is not wrong about it, huh? but the problem uh, that these elite, which like the political elite, try to block this or just to put obstacles on the way to, to free uh, trade um, um, zone, um, became the capitalists in these countries. Like the social-oriented country like Syria created in the 90s or over the time, but since, since the 70s, a kind of political elite which has like very strong uh, economic uh, interest and they have even economic uh, resources they they have the control on the distribution of of the wealth in this country in their own favor at the cost of the collective interest and this elite profits from um, the market protection for themselves so they produce everything and they have <laughs> there's no other, other uh, competition uh, competitors in the uh, in the local market so and this is why opening the market at that point it wasn't very welcome from the let's say the ones who were uh, monopolizing the local market and this is not only in Syria it is the, the same the same schema or the same model you will find it in Egypt for example uh, the elite around Mubarak and his friends and relatives they are the the elite this is the same in Tunisia and so on so it is it is not only a matter of economic logic which like uh, decide to support this project or not, but it is uh, the interest and uh, unfortunately the interest of the few of these uh, people. Let's fast forward because you're talking about what did and didn't happen in the 1950s, say, and I wonder what Arab economies look like had oil not been discovered, for instance. Reflect on what that imagined reality would have looked like and maybe contrast it with what things look like today. Actually, the Arab oil, even if it is only on the Gulf states, um, somehow have been circulated in the whole region through different channels. One of this, um, due to this uh, ban-Arabism uh, ideology, they have been, for example, a lot of Arab investment projects, which has been invested in Sudan, for example, or countries uh, like like Tunisia and so on. Uh, this this circulated the let's say the revenues of Gulf oil within the region. The second. Uh, channel is uh, that these uh, Gulf states, they are rich in resources, but are not rich of uh, labor force. So they had to import labor forces from other countries. Uh, countries like Egypt export a lot of labor force to the Gulf states, in, from Jordan as well, from Syria and so on. So uh, the remittances of these labor forces also again went back to their uh, countries. So the third thing is, is um, we have to look at the political events, uh, let's say, uh, what's happening now at that time. Like we had the Israel-Arab conflict and so on, and the front countries were Jordan, Syria and uh, Egypt. So the Gulf states tried to support these countries by giving them state uh, support directly. And this is the third channel where the, how the oil revenues circulated in the economy in the whole, in the whole region. That was before like in the 90s. After the 90s, it's a new era in the economy, but also in, in different, uh, also from different uh, point of view. I don't know if I, I, I answered your question. You're actually on your way to answering that question. So 
so I wonder if you can even imagine a world where that oil hadn't come into play. Yeah, this is a good question because everyone thinks that the oil is, is the, the, the way to development, for example, the way for advancing uh, economies and so on. But look at Germany. Germany has no oil, but is leading economy in the whole world. Uh, this is a very bad, uh, very bad, let's say, idea of, of uh, how to develop a country. I think oil, from economic point of view, can create a disease which is touch disease because if you have a very strong and very rich uh, sector like uh, the oil and you kids get money very easily from this sector, other uh, sectors will be underdeveloped or be neglected. And then these countries became very much dependent on one sector, which is the oil. This became like more obvious in the 90s when the IMF came and they tried to give a recommendation to the Gulf states to diversify their economy, diversify their uh, exports, as otherwise they are dependent of one product and they present themselves worldwide through oil only. Is that blind spot currently pervasive or is there progress to rectifying that thinking? If you look at the rhetoric of, for example, the government of the Gulf states, you will see or you hear the economic, the minister of economy will saying, uh, we aim at uh, diversifying our economy, our export and so on. They are conscious about it, but they, they don't really do uh, real or let's say concrete steps towards this. Um, for one very simple reason why they do this, because they, they earn enough money from this oil sector and uh, there is no care about collective interest. We talk about the Gulf state that the majority of the population are not locals, not nationals. So we are anyway talking about minority, which has a lot of money, a lot of wealth, and the rest are only labor from India, from Asia, from Africa, from other Arab countries, and they are somehow slaves. And one more thing I want just to mention, it is not only about the resources, because resources alone is not enough to develop. Uh, it is about how you use these resources first, second, how you distribute these resources in the economy, uh, how, who profits from the whole resources. Again, I will mention the Arab Spring because at that time, Egypt and Tunisia had really uh, managed to have a good uh, growth uh, rates economic growth rates. This is why everyone was surprised. Actually, these countries, from macroeconomic point of view, doing really well. Uh, and why, why people are not happy with this? Because this growth, economic growth, is not equally distributed to everyone. Only the elite have profit from all these, and the rest of the, of the population were suffering and became even poorer with the time. So this is make, make the revolution, make the protests. There's one country we haven't brought up in this conversation, which, at least as far as my pedestrian perception is concerned, was this unexpected spoke in the development of Arab identity or Arab economic prosperity is Libya. Their discovery of resources that potentially put them in position to, to jostle with the Gulf states in a way that no one saw coming. I've always wondered about the tension between these uh, imaginaries around Arabness and how they interact with Africa. 
what can you tell me about about that dynamic and maybe the role of Libya? Or maybe my perception is not is not entirely well advised. Thank you for that question first. Um, because uh, I didn't continue maybe the, how you call it, the timeline when I was uh, talk, I started with the 50s. Uh, with the 50s was, was really the pan-Arabism is very important ideology, but as I told you that uh, there's a lot of factors led to to have like counter uh, uh, movement against this. Uh, not very officially, but unofficially. Uh, and uh, this is why, for example, Kazafi, you, t- you uh, talked about Libya. Gaddafi has very specific uh, economic policy. He followed like somehow some social component uh, in his policy and so on. And at some point when he was like very angry with the other Arab leaders, he said, okay, I am an African country. And uh, he tried to go back to the to the second identity uh, in his understanding, which is the African country. And he, he just really uh, became like more connected with the African neighbors. What was the economic consequence of that decision? And I'm fascinated to understand how it, it colors how things look and, and operate between the Arab states in Africa today. I have to say uh, that the Arab countries are not they are not like very very happy with each other. If you see, for example, that there is problems between Algeria and um, Morocco because of the of the South Sahara. This is why, for example, the trade between these three countries, which are like neighboring countries, there is no trade. Algeria, Tunisia, and uh, Morocco. After this big project to involve all Arab countries in one single economic integration project, these attempts didn't uh, success. In the 80s, appears something which is like on sub-regional level, which is like sub-regional integration uh, attempts, which is like the Gulf states. They create the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council as an integration project. In the North Africa, they created the uh, Maghreb Union and so on. But even so so this Maghreb Union doesn't work because of the political problematic. Again, uh, part, uh, back to your question. From an economic point of view, working on the developing countries, I would say all these, these development countries share one interest, whether are African or Arab or Asian. They have to cooperate. The South-South cooperation should be strengthened to be able to face the challenge of the, the, the economy of the North. And this is why it started all countries just to cooperate together. Like there's also in Africa a lot of uh, integration initiatives. Uh, like There's an African Union, but before it was like COMESA. COMESA and of course SADC uh, in the South. And so on. Yeah, and they have, Comesa and Sadiq have the, this African character. This is why they involve the North African countries, which they have a second uh, 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 identity. It's the Arab countries. So Egypt is also part of it. Uh, Tunisia is part of it and so on. And from this point of view, everyone was somehow conscious about the reality that if we cooperate together as developing country, we have, we have a chance to face the globalization, let's say, or the global capitalism, let's say, coming to us and so uh, from this point of view I, I think it is a very good thing to cooperate together for African countries We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about Spark the presenting sponsor of this series Now Spark is a Dutch NGO which focuses on the empowerment of vulnerable groups in 14 of the world's most conflict-affected regions now, Given that context women are of course a key target group for the support Spark provides 
They back initiatives that provide women-led startups and businesses with training, coaching, and access to finance that promotes job creation. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating right now, visit spark.ngo. That's spark.ngo. And now, back to the episode. There's this notion of like the global north as an imaginary. Am I right in, in saying, based on, on some of what you said, that there are the economies that count within what we would term global northern affluent interests, I guess, within that context? And then there's some that might identify as south in terms of their economic agency. Am I right in sort of seeing it like that? Personally, I have a problematic with these terms because they are like the, there's a global north, global south and so on. And there is a global, uh, what we call it, like first world, second world, third world or like developing advanced economies and so on. And everyone knows that, for example, China was for a long time like from the global south and part of the developing countries. And now uh, China is actually challenging US and EU. So uh, these terms are not really correctly used, let's say, with the time. Now the, the, the world is very diversified that you cannot like put uh, the Gulf states uh, together with a couple of African countries which have like no access to internet, no access to water and so on. Or even compare them with European countries. <laughs> yes, with European, this is true. This is, this is why they try to use uh, these emerging uh, uh, economies as a like middle way to just not to classify them with the uh, advanced economies Economies, but not uh, with the uh, developing uh, countries. Uh, but you know, all this classification based on a set of indicators which are very normative and don't take on the consideration the quality. If you say, okay, macroeconomic growth rate. Yes, it's nice, very good. Access to internet. But what about the quality? If you just take the numbers, this is not enough to decide which standards have this country of, of development, for example. This is a brilliant segue to talking about development agendas because a lot of countries who are in the position to basically influence global development agendas use these terms to set priorities and to sometimes impose priorities. When you try and apply a disciplined analytical approach, what do you consider the most important metrics to inform policy or to inform wise economic growth? Very simply, it is not about how much, but how that you do this. For example, not how much students enrolled in the schools, but which kind of quality education they get. Uh, not how much you uh, spend on, uh, on uh, infrastructure, but how kind of infrastructure you produce from this. For example, there is a Gini uh, index, which like trying to uh, measure the disparity the, uh, in income. Uh, in each country, which is important, but even this one need to be reviewed again just to give the better indicator on how the wealth and income in one country or worldwide uh, distributed. Why, why I'm really, this is difficult for me to just see the North like a homogeneous society or economy and the South, because globally there is an increasing tendency to adopt more and more new liberal uh, agendas. The new liberal agendas have like the same effect everywhere, but to different degrees, like the disappearing of the middle class, for example, is happening 
in Germany and happening in Syria and happening in Egypt and happening in Tunisia. But the effect, for example, in Germany, they said the poorer people became like more. But the, the standards of the poor in Germany is different from the standards of the poor in, in Tunisia or in Syria. And I think there is a lot of common interest between, for example, the small farmers who are working in Spain with the farmers who are working in Morocco uh, than uh, in this is Moroccan farmers and 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 uh, Spanish farmers than um, than the interest between the uh, Spanish farmers and the Spanish Spanish uh, capitalists, for example. So the word is can be seen in different way, like according to the social socioeconomic background. If you are a farmer, you have like uh, something to share. Uh, with with other farmers in, in the global north, uh, and uh, if you are a capitalist, you have a lot of things to share with a global with a with a global uh, north capitalist, for example. This is also what make people in the Middle East and in other developing countries maybe more frustrated because their elite, their governments, have common interest with with the big corporates with the with the EU corporates and with the US corporates more than with their own people you know let's assume i'm a i'm a well meaning uh, well intentioned policymaker let's assume they exist <laughs> and i say that tongue in cheek i do know they exist and let's identify an issue which i know is close to your heart and also one that i know a lot of policymakers are looking to solve for for a number of reasons. There seems to be a correlation between empowering women and qualitative improvements in society, especially empowering women entrepreneurs, um, because depending where you are, some studies show that they actually have higher rates of success, they steward their income better, you know, they run companies better. So show me how applying a well-intentioned blanket assumption about improving the lot of, say, women entrepreneurs in Jordan or in Tunisia is actually counterproductive. And maybe to what degree is there perhaps a net benefit, even with these oversimplifications being met? To what extent? Very difficult issue to explain because on the one hand, uh, women has to be given more role in the economy and uh, they are also uh, very good actually or successful in what they are doing. Uh, for example, uh, in the microeconomic, uh, microcredits uh, institution, there, there is uh, some statistics which say credit to the women is more appreciated than to men because they could rebate the loans better than the main the numbers say like this but uh, there is an, another interpretation they said because the women are uh, more hesitated or like just get very fast afraid so they don't want to have a problem they are not strong enough to 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 like uh, face problems or to have like conflict this is why they they you know this so is on one hand this they're, they're really bankable on the other hand they don't seem as confident and assertive as men <laughs> yeah th th somehow like this this is one issue uh, the other uh, depending on which study of course that yeah, you, you you read yeah exactly the the, the other thing it is uh, for example uh, when we're talking about uh, in general okay the the increase of the employment, female employment, which is a very positive uh, sign or indicator, that is again, that like a quantity indicator. Uh, but if you go there and you see under which conditions 
these women are working like uh, you will see in Tunisia for example the most uh, important um, uh, labor force uh, working in the textile uh, sector are women why uh, it is because they are very conscious about the gender no because the women because women in general um, get less money than than uh, wages than the men so i just want to make sure i'm following you before you carry on so on paper you could celebrate the fact that women are being taken up into sort of employment, fueling industrialization. But what you're not looking at is just because, well, frankly, it's cheaper than using men. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this is one thing. Uh, in addition to this, there's, for example, no decent jobs opportunities for women because for example no protection for pregnancy or you know the, there is a lot of lacking conditions to have a, like a good decent work for for uh, Tunisia for, for uh, women for example another example the women in Bangladesh there is some studies which uh, say that through the involvement of the women in Bangladesh in the textile sector and, and the work uh, that's empowered them but there is another study said the money they get directly goes to the men and the men decide how they spend the money. At the end of the day, you, you didn't really empower the, the, the women, but they use the women to empower the whole, uh, like financially, the, the, whole, uh, the whole family. And if, if you also look at where the women are like uh, employed, you will see, for example, 70% of the agriculture sector, uh, labor uh, forces in the agriculture sector in the, uh, the MENA region, uh, according to a study, are are women and everyone know that like the income of agriculture is very low comparing with other sectors and if you look at uh, for example banking sector you will see that women haven't high positions within the management usually they are like the on the operative uh, level not in the management level um, if you look at the decision making process like uh, whether in economic sphere or in political sphere you will see that women are not really a decision maker and uh, this is also one more thing has to be considered when we celebrate the numbers of uh, gender equality according only to how many women get involved in the labor market. And last point, women, if they get in the, uh, involved in the labor market, they cannot take rid of their social uh, role as a like mother, as a like uh, taking care of the family and all these things. This is an additional work for her. So as long as you don't release her or like try to facilitate for her opportunity to concentrate on one job, not two jobs, uh, it is uh, hard to talk about uh, gender equality. And um, at the end of the day, social norms have more influence on uh, uh, women's life everywhere in the world uh, than the economic job or the position in, in, in at work. I wonder how the complex notion of Arab economies interacts with the desire for certain interests to see women empowered. And, and I say this carefully. I, I, the reason I say certain interests is because I think there's sometimes the assumption that everyone has the same interests. Um, the norms that would constitute the definition of an empowered, economically independent or, you know, woman in, say, Europe match 
that same definition of someone in, say, Saudi Arabia. It's very challenging for women to be self-employed in in the Arab countries. Like if they, uh, if women haven't, like social support, like like acceptance that she is an entrepreneur, uh, for example, it is difficult to to run a business. You will will not get get enough uh, attention. This is one thing. It is also it is it has to to do also with the social class of these women. There is a like the women <laughs> coming from rich families. They have different conditions than the poor women, for example. Uh, different limitations on what they're allowed to do and can do? Yeah, different limitation and uh, uh, yeah. Um, Even societally? Yes, yes, of course. And also, for example, uh, women in the, in the urban centers have different limitations than the rural uh, women, for example, who are working with agriculture and so on. So it is, you cannot like generalize or talking in general about things, but in general, if there is something bad happening, the women will be uh, influenced worse than men, for example. This is one thing. The second thing it is if, if they want to uh, reach the same level of success the men had already, they have to make more efforts to get the same level. Do you know what I mean? It is they are like all the time struggling to get to the point where the brother or the father or the husband already done with with less efforts. So in wrapping up, let's talk about what you would most like the people who write the checks in the sort of development community chasing economic empowerment within Arab economies, what would you most like them to know, especially those, uh, but not limited to, those who are looking to empower women through jobs or entrepreneurship? What would you, what would you most like them to know? Um, first of all, you cannot develop the economy without a democratic political system. So, oh, that's shots fired right there. <laughs> yes, yes, you cannot like have a, a highly developed economy without to uh, allow people just to express their uh, opinion, to participate in the setting of the economic policies, to be participate in in planning uh, your city in, in everything. The f- this is the first one. Uh, the second one is the transparency and uh, anti-corruption measures. Uh, I'm talking not a very small corruption like with the bribes but also the great corruption in terms of how you, for example, distribute uh, the public tenders uh, who about subcontractors who are well connected to the regime to get the big fish. And uh, what can the ordinary small people can get and so on. This is the second uh, thing. The, the third thing is, is uh, they have to do it. Is they have to deal with the problems Differently, it is we cannot, like for example, uh, improve the situation of women or the situation of small farmers without to have like uh, to look at the whole system, economic system. There is a structural problems economically. It is uh, they rooted in the in the 70s or the 80s or 90s. They have to to solve these problems uh, or to 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 see the solution from this point of view. Not like just yeah job creation how you can can do job creation if there is no investment if there is no state can invest because the states are like have no money anymore to invest uh, there's no possibility to have a like job uh, creation for example this is what i can say to the to to the policymakers if they um, want to hear <laughs> some might push back on that notion because they'll 
they'll point to um, apparently very successful and well-run countries that don't exhibit some of the dynamics you're saying. It sounds to me there's part of you that's an activist, there's part of you that's an academic. You're probably, if I were to, to gauge, about 80% academic, 20% activist. I don't know if you own that or not, but are you speaking as an economist, for example, when you talk about the, the necessity of democracy? as a foundational tablecloth for everything else that must come? Or are you speaking more as an idealist who buys into certain doctrine? I have a question to you, actually. Do you talk about sustainable development and long-term growth, or are you talking about growth for the next 10 years? If you're talking about the growth for the next 10 years, maybe you can have a repressive regime, which like uh, ensure for you a growth of 3 to 4 six percent per, per per year but i can i can guarantee that in 10 years it will have a like explosion in form of protest like look iraq now iraq is not a not a poor country they have a lot of of oil a lot of money uh, coming in the state uh, budget but why people are uh, on the street because they have no clean water people dying because of the dirty water we're talking about sustainable development about long term growth about peaceful and stability in the in the long term you have to have a long term strategy and not like very short sighted one Essentially, what you're telling me is Dr. Saeed is speaking in her professional capacity when she assesses, when she made that list. Thank you. All that's left is to thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. I understand that you think and do most of your best work in the Arabic language and, and for you to sit here and um, chop it up, as the young people say, uh, with me in English, I really do appreciate it. I've, I've learned a ton and I, and I know we can't be exhaustive with these issues, but I think you've given the audience uh, we serve and, and anyone else who happens upon this conversation a real uh, treat in terms of uh, a launch pad for for further discovery and understanding in everything to do with Arab economies and how and how things work in the modern context. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Said. Uh, thank you very much.